According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me tonight in Ephesians chapter 2. We started a new section Sunday morning on verses 11 through 22. It's the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, and so I'm looking forward to getting right back into that. Of course, this is Wednesday night, so we'll take a few minutes for a question and answer, and that's become our Wednesday night tradition. And uh, man's got his hand ready to go up already. I haven't even prayed yet, so that's good. Uh, I have a couple more that came in by email already, so uh, actually Josiah is ahead of you on the list there. So let's uh, start with a word of prayer, committing our time for the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you as unworthy as we are, and yet made worthy in Christ. And thank you, Father, for imputing our sin to his account, and imputing his righteousness to our account, and making it possible for us to stand before you, not in our own name, but in the name of Jesus Christ. So we stand here, Father, and thank you for the blessings of presenting ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We call upon your faithfulness tonight to open our eyes. Help us to rightly divide that we might make the, have a clear understanding so that we can make an appropriate application. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, we'll get to the live questions here in a moment. But we had um, a couple of... Josiah had some great questions that came in. Um, this one was marvelous. If Abraham and his men fought off five kings, how did the Egyptians enslave all of Israel? Wow, I hadn't thought of that. That's a, that's a marvelous question. So um, how do I answer this? <laughs> it's, it's been haunting me. A uh, couple of things, actually. So, I mean, I've clearly the story of Abraham and, and grabbing 218 men and going out and defeating the five kings, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing story. And, and clearly, under the leading of the Holy Spirit with the empowerment of, of what he provides there, uh, Hebrews 11 does talk about uh, who by faith conquered kingdoms, um, verse 34 talks about escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So, I mean, these are just tremendous accomplishments of Old Testament heroes walking by faith, being used of God to, to accomplish mighty things. Um, and then just three generations later to be completely enslaved by, by Israel. When you, when you look at the story there in Exodus and what it was that happened when, when they went through different stages of enslavement, um, yeah, you have to ask yourself, what, uh, what were they thinking? Why did they allow this to happen? And, and obviously, Abraham's gone, Isaac's gone, Jacob's gone, even Joseph is gone by the time they're enslaved, right? So you're talking about the children of the 12 tribes. And, uh, you know, was there not someone to stand up and fight? Or did they even try to stand up and fight? Did they, in fact, w did, the, did the Spirit of God influence them to just stand down and, and accept their, their judgment uh, because there, there had been a prophetic message given to Abraham when uh, in Genesis 15, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So that was already prophesied. That was prophesied in the, in the life of Abraham. So um, admittedly, Genesis wasn't written yet, but I have to believe this message was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and so forth, um, any, in any event. So I'm, I'm answering a question. It's a how question. How did the Egyptians enslave all of Israel? 
or a why question, why did they let it happen? And we can't always answer the how questions and the why questions, but it is a very good question. And then the second one just came in this afternoon. I haven't really taken the time to think through as much of this, so I may hold off on this one until next week um, with respect, again, with the Exodus. You've been reading Exodus lately. The, um, when, when Moses stands before Pharaoh and, and the request to go out and worship, and then the insistence that they take the wives and the children and the animals and those things with them. That, that detail actually came fairly late in the, uh, in the process. So Anyway, I'll give that one some more thought and, and come back to answer that one next week. So I'm going to mark this one as concluded when it goes from red to purple. And I'll save, uh, save that one as red for next week. All right. Other questions? All right, we have the live studio audience. Also, we want to keep an eye on uh, YouTube, which rarely gets any questions submitted, except last week for some reason. All right, go ahead. Okay, so I have a question. It's, it's, it's um, more of an, an advice type of question because I, I know the answer already, but uh, finding passages and addressing some, um, uh, some uh, misinformed theology that I've recently encountered um, People are trying to tell me uh, that there are certain passages in the New Testament where Paul is saying you can lose your salvation. He cites Hebrews 11 as one of them, and uh, some other passages in the uh, New Testament. Can you list a couple of these passages and, and address? Uh, are there any passages that you can think of that people will try and say, like, oh, well, Paul's trying to say you can lose your salvation here. Can you uh, address some of those passages and, and why he's not saying that? Because I know he's not saying that. But Yeah, there's, there's a few. I don't mind spotlighting them but isn't it curious though that when you when you start seminary and you tell people that you're going to be a pastor that it just seems that people feel compelled to unload their bad theology on you and try to <laughs> try to get you on board with what they're doing there but so to answer your question though i want to know why do they think paul wrote hebrews all right because i don't believe paul wrote hebrews but that's that's a, a side point too uh, so uh, very frequently they will point to the warning passages. Uh, there are five warning passages in Hebrews, and they can be read in a way that that lends the Arminian view that that the danger of falling away equals losing your salvation, right? So if you assume that that's what it equals, well then you're gonna you're gonna get there, but you have to assume that up front. So in a sense, that's circular logic right there, where you're already assuming the consequence by defining apostasy as losing salvation. Instead, saying, no, apostasy is apostasy, and you're falling away from the faith, and, and you've lost your temporal walk, you've lost your experiential sanctification. Clearly, you're still born again, because that's, that's how it works. So anyway, yeah, they, they, they point to those um, other passages they may point to. It's been a while since I've encountered an Armenian, honestly, so maybe I'm a little rusty on some of their favorite verses. But I've got a whole slew of my favorite eternal security verses, and I don't mind pointing, pointing to those. I love John 10. I love being held firmly in the Father's right hand, being held firmly in the Son's hand. So there's two hands of, of omnipotence that are holding me secure. Uh, I like Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, there, there's plenty of eternal security passages that, that I love to just point to and, and let it go at that. Yeah, thank you. By the way, he did not say that Paul wrote Hebrews. That is that was that was me. I was okay. he was he was saying there are other books that Paul wrote that he says that Paul said in those particular books. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do have one more question about Elijah. All right, Elijah. Why did that one guy come back to life after they dumped the dead guy in the pit and his bones are in the bottom of the pit? What was, what was up with that? <laughs> Another why question. I do think it's interesting. So Elijah raised one from the dead. Elisha raised two from the dead because he had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And then, of course, Jesus raised three from the dead, which I think is interesting, fulfilling both Elijah and Elisha typology. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the bones in the open grave were actually, that was the second of Elisha's two. I'll have to go back and double check that. But um, and it is curious that, that uh, here's, a, here's a, a, a dead body in a grave and there's still the capacity to restore to physical life. And, and I expect something to deal with the empty grave of Jesus and other things that might happen there, so. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's fun to think about related to that. Like I say, Elijah raised one, Elisha raised two, and Jesus raised three from the dead in his, in his earthly ministry. Well, thank you. All right, you're welcome. Okay, other questions tonight? From our live studio audience. Why did I start calling it that? I don't know. All right, front row over here. So I spoke earlier to you, um, with you, uh, about the difference between the blood of Christ and, and, and the cross, and, and there's no difference. Yes, that was, in fact, that's a great Wednesday night question. We were talking about that this morning. So the, the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ, those expressions, and how do we handle those expressions? Are we, because we're, we have a literal hermeneutic, we handle everything literally, but that also includes idioms, and you have to handle the idioms literally, and the metaphors. You handle the metaphors literally, and so you don't misapply the, the metaphor by abusing the metaphor and confusing the, the symbol for the reality, right? And, and in fact, right here in Ephesians chapter 2, we have the blood of Christ that's mentioned in verse 13. Let me color that yellow. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, and so you have to decide, are we talking about the literal blood, you know, the hemoglobin, the fluid, the platelets, the whatever. What, what was Jesus' blood type anyway? I'm curious. So was it the actual physical blood cells that he shed because nails pierced his side and pierced his hands and his feet and so forth? But then we also have, and I love that it's in the same context, that we have the cross, right? And so these are, the, these are the, the two dominant metaphors for the work, the spiritual work that Jesus Christ accomplished during that time that he was shedding his blood on the cross, right? But we don't confuse the metaphor with the work, the actual spiritual work that he was doing. Because he was accepting our sins, he was accepting the wrath of God, he was also uh, serving in, in other priestly capacities in his, in his function there on the cross. And so the fact that we have both of these, I think, keeps us from getting locked in on the metaphor, right? So we don't get, we don't get so uh, wrapped up in the metaphor of blood that we think it was the physical blood, right? Did, did, did he transport physical blood to heaven when he cleansed the heavenly temple? Because the heavenly temple was cleansed by the blood of Christ, okay? And likewise, the cross. When we say reconciled through the cross, are we talking about the lumber? Are we talking about the wood, 
You know, what, what, was the, what was intrinsic to the wood that allowed the reconciliation to take place? And so uh, I think it's useful, and, and this is a marvelous passage because you got both of them right here on the same screen, right? They're right there in the same immediate context. So you realize when we're talking about the cross, we're not talking about the material, the lumber, uh, the, the physical device of the, of the cross. And when we're talking about the blood, we're not talking about the physical blood. We're talking about the work that he accomplished as he shed his blood on the cross. And so I think that helps to, uh, to straighten these things out. And, uh, and, and it's, I appreciate the question, and it's good to get it out there. I think Colonel Thiem took a lot of heat when he taught on the blood of Christ, even though he didn't invent it, you know, and, and solid men have taught it that way for a long, long time. You know, I can go back to um, the 1700s, and, and you can find John Gill in the 18th century. And either he was on theme tapes back then, or uh, it probably went the other direction. I expect theme stole from him, you know, borrowed, adapted. None of it's copyrighted. You're just, you're faithful men studying the word of God. So, uh, but theme was criticized for supposedly denigrating the blood of Christ by teaching the blood of Christ on this basis, that it wasn't the physical hemoglobin that accomplished anything. It was the, uh, the spiritual work that he achieved through his spiritual death. On, uh, on the cross. So, all right, and Glenn, let's get the microphone back so, to Glenn. Uh -huh. So my question was... <laughs> oh, okay. So, because I, I, uh, we know that they both accomplished the same thing, but could there be, could we uh, maybe dig into it and find any, any difference, any differences in, in, in the blood of Christ and the cross? They accomplished the same thing, but if... Uh, I don't know if there's anything that would that could be distinct from each other. Or, I don't or, think or so. I don't think so. I think exact same yeah, thing. you're finding that either they're interchangeable. You can use either metaphor. Okay. We can talk about the blood of Christ. We can talk about the cross of Christ. We can talk about the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. You know, um, and all of those are referring to the event when he accomplished the work that the Father sent for him to do. Okay. okay. And let's come back to Glenn, too. I think Glenn's got a a follow-up or a comment on that? Well, I, I would just say it's it's connected to Passover. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the death of a, an animal didn't do anything, and it says so in Hebrews, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, they, they could have had the, the bowl of blood, but unless it was, you know, applied. Yes. It wasn't on the door. In the form of a cross. It's not the actual cross. It's not the actual mediator brought near is you know that's technical language for the mediator between uh -huh. god and man and and to me i never understood that how could they know the passover story and still go with the transubstantiation and you know all the things that they right have tried to do with the the literal blood of christ and they the literally literal, get very emotional about it and it's, you know, it's yeah the cross as well i mean it's it's it's, mm -hmm. it's not it's not the mechanism even it's just the the reality of it right no no i agree i agree and I, but i think it's an emotional investment i think sometimes they get confused it doesn't help that so many of our sins i mean so many of our hymns talk about are you washed in the blood you know yes i'm washed in the blood but it wasn't a literal washing in in blood right so uh that would that would be nasty and smell bad and i've never filled a bathtub with blood and felt like I needed to just soak in there. 
Okay, so you got to understand the metaphor for what it is. And, and, but if you do encounter a, a brother or sister and they're really struggling over it, I think it's an opportunity to maybe be aware of that, be a little cautious and sensitive to where they're coming from. and then, Because um, um, at the end of the day, even if they can't express it as well, they still have the same faith we have. They're saved by faith in, in the faith alone and Christ alone. So we can hopefully work with them as they have their inadequate descriptions. <laughs> Does that make sense? All right. Not appreciate that. All right. And we'll give cl- uh, the back of the cleanup heater there. We'll give it to, uh, oh, we got Tams has one too? Okay. Tams real quick and then Dan. Same kind of pull up Hebrews 9. If you pull up Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9? Yeah. Uh, just, just another answer, uh, like 13, 14, and 15 kind of th- sure. explains it to me, you know, that if, the, you know, if the blood of a goat did this, then... Yeah, the blood of goats and bulls and calves, but even that blood was still symbolic. Yeah. That blood was not effective in itself, and so when it contrasts it with the blood of Christ, it's still the symbolic reality of what the blood of Christ represents in contrast to the symbolic reality of what the blood of animals represents. So even those passages do the same thing. It goes on to say, well, what does it, what does the blood of Christ purge, or at least the King James purge my conscience? Right. I'm wondering what the, anyway. Yep. Same way. It's the symbolic reality of what that blood was doing when, when he died on the cross. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Pastor Dan, we'll give you our last call here. So I'm not sure this was even intended in the, the question, in Emilio's question, um, but as far as how the blood affects the believer versus how the cross affects the believer, I've seen a distinction, I've even thought of the distinction uh, and taught the distinction myself in terms of the blood dealing with our sins and the cross dealing with us as sinners. Uh, Romans chapter 6 where we recognize um, the co-crucifixion, that we're crucified with Christ, that we're buried with Christ, we're raised to newness of life uh, with Christ. And this reality, uh, walking by faith in this reality, the reality becomes a realization uh, that we realize that's the truth about us. So do you think that's valid in terms of a distinction of how the, the cross affects, the cross of Christ affects our Christian walk versus how the the blood of, of Christ affects our Christian walk. I don't know. I, I guess I'll give that some thought moving forward. I've never, never considered. I've always viewed them as interchangeable okay. metaphors. Um, but if if I'm if I discover some things moving forward where I start to think, okay, the cross refers to these doctrines and the blood refers to those doctrines, then then that may be a distinction I'll start making. Well, I guess, I, I mean, I was accepting the idea that there's, like Glenn was saying, that there's, there's one concept that can be spoken of in various ways. Um, I'm sorry, yet, I can't hear you. Uh, I was, as Glenn was talking about, it seems to me there's one concept that can be thought of in different ways, can be expressed in different ways, blood and, and cross, uh-huh. um, and yet application, there seems to be, to me, those distinctions. So, right, right, yeah, it'd be yeah. any number of applications. Okay. And just one final question related to the same thing as far as dealing with, we have, we have a consistent literal hermeneutic. And how would you deal 
with someone who wants to argue the point that if we're using a consistent literal hermeneutic, where in the scriptures will we go to determine that, that the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ are metaphors? Oh, yeah. See, that's, I think that? that's key. And I think that um, it, it's a bit of a dodge on their part when they say, well, you're not being literal. Mm -hmm. When we say, no, we're being literal, you're, just, you're failing to identify the metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so um, they, they may try to use that as an argumentation to... But it's like when Jesus says, I am the door, mm -hmm. do I have to hang him in a frame and on some hinges and, and flip him open and closed? You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, it's legitimate to, it's not a denial of a literal hermeneutic to accept the metaphors for metaphors, to accept parables for parables, to accept proverbs for proverbs, mm -hmm. things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with that. And I, and I think so... Yeah, I don't have an issue with that. And if someone wants to throw that out there, I say, okay, fine, let's talk about it. Let's describe why you don't think it is. And in the passages that clearly, especially if they're going to go back and forth with blood and, and cross like that, uh, you know, then explain to me the lumber and what the lumber was doing there. Okay, you, you want to take it literal? Ta teach me. Take it, take it literal and teach me. I, I'm going to learn the value of lumber in, uh, in this. And then, you know, and then give them a shot. And then the, I'm guessing they're going to back up and say, oh, no, no, it wasn't the lumber, you know. But mm -hmm. um, perhaps there'll be some success there. Okay. Thank you. Right. It's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Literal metaphors. All right. Well, thank you for that. And um, if I did not get to your question, or if I answered your question in a non-satisfactory or incomplete way, then uh, let me know after class and we can, we can talk about that some more. I do want to get to Ephesians and pick up where we left off on Wednesday, cause, or on Sunday. Um, I think this is vital, and it is a remember, but now contrast, okay? And so it really, it, it's, a, it's a great development, and it's not a repeat of verses 1 through 10. That's, that's the... Clearly, we have to see that the contrast is different, and the headings are different. So when we started chapter 2, I gave a heading to verses 1 through 10, and I, I summarized it with the statement, you were dead, but God. And that's the summary heading of this paragraph, you were dead, but God. And that's, uh, that's just the uh, brief description to introduce verses 1 through 10, where we have a formerly... Uh, situation, and then we have a present situation, okay? Then and now, presently and now, or formerly and presently. And so in verses 1 through 10, the contrast is between what, how you were walking when you were unbelievers and how now how you can walk as believers in Christ, right? So uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. And it goes on to describe the additional details there. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. And it's just a, it's a sad estate. It's the life of the unbeliever. And it's, it's very well understood on this basis. But God, and I love that, but God, despite all of that, okay, all of that being true, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. 
And now that we have this new life, there is a new walk. Because we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's a, it's a great passage. I love the verses 1 through 10, describing what you used to be as unbelievers, what you are now that you're saved. Okay, And it's very much, it was a formerly and presently contrast where the, uh, the parameters of the formerly and the presently uh, are you were, un, you were not saved, now you are. Okay? You were dead, now you're alive. You had one walk, now you got a new walk. And, it, and that whole formerly, presently contrast is a, a salvific, has salvific parameters, if that makes sense. Because okay? it's, it's centered in the difference between when you weren't saved, but now that you are saved. You are now presently having been saved once. And the issue of salvation is what makes the difference between being dead or alive, walking Satan's walk or walking the Father's walk, and all the contrast there. So that's, that's straightforward. There should be clarity on that. No, uh, no issues, no doubts, no, no uh, question. But now we get to 11 and following. And now in this section, again, there's similar contrasts, or the similar language of contrast, I should say, because we have the formerly particle, okay? We've got the, the tata, the then, you know, at that time. We've got uh, formerly in verse 11 and formerly in verse 13. So remember that formerly, you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So formerly, there's a formerly statement there, and we're going to get into those details. And that formerly statement is, is uh, restated in verse 13. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So again, this is a, a, a passage that is drawing a contrast, a then and now contrast. But we have to ask ourselves, is it, is it the same contrast? Once again, is it an issue of being an unbeliever then and being a believer now? Or what, what, might, the other, what might the parameters be here if it's not salvific? If it's not, strictly speaking, a salvific contrast? And that's what I'm going to demonstrate, because it is not a salvific contrast. It's a dispensational contrast. And it is, it is dealing with a position for the Gentiles now in the church age that the Gentiles never had in prior stewardships. Okay, so this is what we're going to deal with as we break it down. And in here, it's you were separate and excluded. Formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, you were at that time separate and excluded. I could have even stretched it out more because you were separate, you were excluded, you were alienated or you were strangers, you were hopeless, and you were godless. <laughs> All right? So you were separate, excluded, alienated, hopeless, and godless. But Christ. Okay? But Christ. And here's the but Christ. But now in Christ. So that was then, this is now. So that there's a similarity. 1 through 10 had a then and now contrast. 11 through 22 have a then and now contrast. The difference being, the then and now contrast in 1 through 10 was, was centered on salvation. The lost estate, the, the redeemed estate, being dead, being alive. 
Okay? Nothing in, in, uh, in this then and now has to do with dead and alive. has to do with being lost or being saved. It has to do with being a Gentile and having an enmity with the Jews versus now you, you are a new creation in Christ. Now you, the, the enmity is gone. Now there is a new man. And that the resolution is, uh, is, is marvelous. And, and so this, uh, this text is really a great introduction to what chapter 3 will deal with when we deal with the mystery doctrine of the church, which in other generations was not made known as has now been made known. And so we'll get into that detail in, in chapter 3, but it's introduced here in chapter 2, and I don't want us to miss this. Because I think if, if all we do is view this as a repeat of verses 1 through 10, we're doing it a grave disservice because it's actually that's not what it's doing at all. It actually misses the mark of what this text is truly saying. If we accept it for what it's truly saying, I think we have a, a, a sweet, sweet dispensational introduction to the mystery doctrine uh, passage of chapter 3. And so let's, uh, let's highlight that as well. But clearly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh. So this is, uh, the parameters here are, are talking in human terms, in terms of bios life in terms of, of the, the physical realities of biology, whereby you have Jews and you have Gentiles, either or, right? And who are called uncircumcision. We, we need to have some name-calling practice, okay? And we need to, uh, no, we don't really, but uh, this is a passage whereby name-calling, the pejorative label has been given, that these Gentiles in the flesh... For the most part, in, in Ephesus, they would have been uh, Greeks, they could have been Romans, they could have been uh, Lydians, they could have been, um, you know, an assortment of other uh, Gentile peoples. It doesn't matter if they were Greeks or Romans or Lydians or, or what have you. They, uh, they're not Jews, then they would be counted as Gentiles. And to have this label, why not just call them Gentiles? Formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called Gentiles by the Jews, no, Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Why has that become a pejorative? And who's calling them that? Well, those who are called circumcision. And who's calling them that? <laughs> so, the name calling is by the ones called circumcision, and they are calling the Gentiles uncircumcision. Why are they calling such a thing? Well, that's part of what we're going to get into, because this is the backdrop for what's known as enmity. And it's not enmity between fallen humanity and a holy God. And the barrier we see here is not the barrier between sinners and a holy God. I think the problem is we see the word barrier, and we immediately get out our uh, RB theme booklet on the barrier. <laughs> and we think, okay, the barrier... And these are the stones that the unbeliever has a problem because he can't get to the holy God. And so we have the barrier that's keeping unbelievers from approaching God. And then right away, as soon as we've done that, again, we're making this fatal flaw. We're going back to the contrast of verses 1 through 10, where the issue is unbelievers that become saved and, and uh, now they're spiritually alive. It is not the barrier between God and man that's spoken of here. It's the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And who put that there? Who put that there? Where did the enmity come from? Where did the laws come from and the ordinances? And, and how did those laws and ordinances become the barrier that it is? Okay. 
All of that we've got to look at. So Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, I mean, seriously, is that, is that insulting? Is it supposed to be insulting? Would, you know, if, if they're using it in an insulting way and you happen to be a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile, does that insult you? Do you feel insulted? Or do you brush it off and, and realize that, okay, this circumcised Jew is uh, looking down on me? Um, all right, fine, whatever. Okay, I'm going to go home and eat some bacon and, and laugh at him, or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the case may be, okay? All of these exclusions, separate from Christ, separate from Christ. Understand, that's not a salvation issue. That whatever your Gentile people group is, if you're a Greek, did the Greeks have a Messiah? Were the Greeks promised a coming Messiah? No, they weren't. Only the Jews had a promised coming Messiah. That, uh, that it's, it's Israel. My, Paul says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who, who were the fathers? Whose were the covenants? Whose were the promises? From whom is the Christ? And so any Gentile people, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, you know, the Americans, I mean, whatever Gentile people group you want to you point to, it doesn't matter. Every single one of them was Christless. None of them had a promised Messiah. The only promised Messiah was the Hebrew promised Messiah. Okay? And so, um, and, and so when a Gentile got saved, here, let's, let's go back, let's, let's go back in time prior to the day, uh, the day of Pentecost, okay? And we'll, we'll talk about your favorite Gentile believer in the dispensation of Israel. Okay? Pick one. Uriah the Hittite. Okay? I think he was a marvelous believer. Testified to a great faith. But he's a Hittite. Did the Hittites have a promised Messiah? No, Israel had a promised Messiah. Which I think is why he got excited about living in Israel and serving uh, King David and and, uh, and, and identifying with the Jewish people and the Hebrew scriptures and, and so forth. But still, when he got saved, did, he have a, did, the, did the Hittites have a, a, a Messiah? He did not. Or even go back pre-Abraham, go back to Enoch, go back to, any, go back to Job. Did Job have a Messiah? He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. He was a believer, but his people group from the land of Uz, we'll call him an Uzite, okay, he was an Uzzy. Uh, he was probably descended from, he's probably the Jobab of Genesis 10, descended from Eber, but through uh, Ru, or through uh, Joktan, rather than through Peleg, okay, we have a very extensive Joktan line in Genesis 10, that's not the line of Christ, but it is a Hebrew line, it's just the Joktan Hebrew line, and so, does Job have a Messiah? No. Because the Messiah comes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So pick your favorite Gentile believers and, and realize it doesn't matter whether they're saved or not. It doesn't matter whether they're saved or not. They're still uncircumcision and they're still separate from Christ. They're still excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Even if they relocate there and live there, they can live there as aliens and strangers and sojourners and so forth. But that doesn't turn them into Jews. Likewise, 
strangers, alienated from the covenants of promise. Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, new covenants. They're with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Having no hope and without God in the world. Unless they accept, this is the point, they have to accept the God of Israel. Because the God of the Greeks, what, Zeus? Aphrodite? I mean, or uh, I guess since we're in Ephesus, we've got to start pumping up uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, is that your God? Well, then you're without a God in this world because Artemis is a false God. So recognizing with all of these from a Gentile perspective, being um, separate, being excluded, being alienated, being uh, hopeless and godless, that doesn't change when you get saved as an Old Testament believer. Okay? It only changes when you're a New Testament believer in Christ. This is where we understand that the that was then, this is now contrast is entirely a dispensational contrast between before the church and now in the church. That's the reality of what we're seeing in this passage. Let me approach it also from the Jewish side. All of these, all of these uh, disadvantages for the, for the Gentile are all advantages for the Jew. Paul answers this in Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. That's a big plus. <laughs> You've got canon of scripture. You have the revealed uh, word of God from the Hebrew text. And it was the Jews that had that. The Gentiles didn't have that. And so the circumcision, the uh, citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel, whatever the tribe was, whatever their land grant was, whatever their citizenship was, they would fall under the commonwealth of uh, the polity of, of Israel. The covenants of promise were theirs. Notice all of these were theirs whether they were saved or not. A Jewish unbeliever. So pick your favorite Jewish unbeliever from the Old Testament. Do you have one? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. We can prove that he was never saved. He's an unbeliever in, in the dispensation of Israel. You know what? He still enjoyed every one of these advantages that's described here because they're not connected to salvation. He's still a part of the covenant nation. He's still his party. He's still circumcised. He's still um, uh, included in the commonwealth of Israel. He's, he's not a stranger. He's a native to the covenant of promise. He does have the hope of Israel. In fact, I think he was so motivated by that hope, it drove him to his betrayal of the Christ. He, was, he had that hope of the kingdom. Let's get this show on the road. <laughs> and, uh, and even though he was an unbeliever, as, uh, as a citizen of the nation of Israel, who was, who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who's the God of Israel? God. God is still his God. He's still the God of Israel, whether they're saved or not. This is, uh, this is perhaps one of the biggest contrasts. We get so spoiled based on how things are now. To be a member of the body of Christ, to be in the church, to exercise our stewardship in the church age, requires that you must be born again. If you're not saved, you're not in the body of Christ. If you're not saved, you're not a steward in, in God's program. Okay? Because our stewardship is different from Israel's stewardship. Have you figured that out yet? Israel in their stewardship had a stewardship regardless of whether they were saved or not. 
You could be a high priest and not even be born again. Just so long as your dad was high priest before you and he died and you now are the high priest, you don't even have to be saved to be the high priest. Okay? Or any other function of their earthly stewardship as an earthly nation in the midst of the surrounding Gentile earthly nations. Their stewardship was grounded in physical requirements of physical birth. Our stewardship is grounded in spiritual requirements of spiritual birth, the heavenly birth, the birth from above. I mean, there's a whole doctrine centered on this with respect in, the, in Hebrews, by the way, that highlights that the, the Levitical priesthood had, was on the basis of physical requirements. Christ holds his priesthood on the basis of an indestructible life. And praise God for that, because we share that indestructible life, and we share that priesthood in Christ. And so once, uh, once this reality dawns on you that all the Jews, saved or not, that came out of Egypt walking through the Red Sea, you think every single one of those was born again, walking through the Red Sea? Whether they were saved or not, they were delivered from their earthly bondage and, and brought out of Egypt. Whether they're saved or not, they're part of the covenant nation of Israel because it's an earthly kingdom with a physical birth requirement. So different from what we have in the church. And that's the point Paul's driving home in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. The formerly is before the church age. The, the, the position of the Gentiles before the church age. Even the believing Gentiles before the church age did not have the advantages that Israel was given before the church age. So, and we'll spell these out. I think we'll spend some time maybe with each one. We'll break them down um, separate. They, you know, they, they were Messiahless. They, uh, they, they, were not, they didn't have the, the political structure of Israel. They didn't have the covenants. They were hopeless and godless in their Gentile estate. What hope do, does any Gentile nation have? Is there a Gentile nation with, with an eternal hope of, of the divine promises? Guaranteed to be here in the, to survive the tribulation and be here in the millennial kingdom? Israel does. Even though they're dispersed, even though they're destroyed, they have a promise of restoration, they have a promise of survival, and they have a promise of eternal existence with the throne of David being an eternal throne. What Gentile nation has such uh, eternal promises? Okay? Uh, America doesn't. If we get destroyed tomorrow, does that somehow violate the covenants or violate the plan of God or violate a promise? Or No, because we're a Gentile nation. All right, we're going to spell some of these things out here too. So, the passage begins with an imperative to remember. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. The contrast in verses 1 through 10 just spelled it out without really a command. It just said, this is what you were, this is what you are now. But this contrast begins with an imperative to remember, a present active imperative of mene monuo. Mene monuo. And uh, it starts with that MN, that, that awkward MN blend, like mnemonics, that starts with that MN blend. That's hard to remember, sadly. Because it means remember, and remembering how to spell it is usually a, a challenge. 
M-N-E-M-O-N-E-U-O, Menemonuo. Remember this, and keep on remembering this. Keep on remembering this. Don't ever lose track of the fact that we are now in the church age, and praise God for that. I think it's also worth pointing out, as Ephesians is written, just in ballpark figures here, and I do have an earlier date for Ephesians than a lot of folks. If, if, if you want to go for the 62 AD date, that's fine. Um, if, if you want to put it in, in the context of Acts 28, where Paul's in a Roman imprisonment and so forth, I think it's better to put it up into an Ephesian imprisonment in the third missionary journey. Uh, but be that as it may, we're, we're really only disputing the difference between 56 AD and 61, 62 AD thereabouts. Okay, So really, we're, we're fine-tuning a, a, a chronology of the New Testament there. But let me ask you this. We're, we're, let's just use 56 AD for the, for the sake of argument. So he's writing to the Ephesians in 56 AD, and he's commanding them to remember what it used to be like Versus now. Do we have the concept of how new the church age truly is in 56 AD? Beginning in Pentecost of 33 AD. We're really only talking from 33 to 56. We're talking 23 years. From the, from the day of Pentecost that begins the church age to the authorship of the, uh, the book of, of Ephesians. Okay? 23 years. Now, that's on the low end. If you want to add another six years, that's fine. But 23 years ago, so think about where you were in 2001. As I'm standing here tonight, it's 2024, right? 2024, okay. And where were you in 2001? Can you recall? Now, this is what we're talking about because if... if Maybe it's hard for us to relate to how new the church was as the, as the, as the New Testament was being written. Because it wasn't that long ago when, if a Gentile got saved, he got saved as an Old Testament believer, and the situation there in verses 11 and 12 was still an active reality. Not until the church age then does that situation change. And I love how this situation gets fixed, okay? So, yeah, 2001 is not that long ago. I can remember it. And, and, and you know, my, in fact, I was already a pastor by then. And, and so the, the time frame is, is kind of an interesting thing to uh, consider. All right, so therefore remember, the wonderful essay on salvation in Christ, that's verses 1 through 10, is now followed by a different contrast, the Jew-Gentile contrast and the glorious new man reality in Christ. So back then was a Jew-Gentile contrast, but now is a glorious new man reality in Christ. And, and I love this. And by the time we're done, I'm, this is going to be so proven and so obvious and so detailed. Um, you know, maybe by the, the, the tenth class in this, you're going to say, okay, I got it in the first class. Why do you keep beating this dead horse? All right, but I want you to notice something. In, 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 the, in the previous paragraph, if the problem was spiritual death, how did God solve that? Spiritual life, right? You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the remedy for spiritual death was spiritual life. What's the remedy here? We have all these problems, 
I'm, uh, I'm separated, I'm excluded, I'm alienated, I'm hopeless, I'm godless. And so what's the solution here? Does God turn the Gentiles into Jews? Right? Does he, does he put them under the, the, the Jewish covenants? Does he, does he give them citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel? Does he, um, does he somehow invent a Gentile Christ figure for them? Um, does he give their Gentile nations an eternal hope? Does he, uh, does he now call himself the God of the Greeks as well as the God of Israel? So the fact is, all of these five exclusions and separations and disadvantages, he doesn't even address those. Instead, what does he do? He creates something new. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups. I'm going to stress that powerfully when we get to verse 14. He made both groups into one. Because he didn't take the Gentiles and turn them into Jews. And he also didn't take the Jews and um, force them to stop uh, gloating over the uncircumcision. Okay? He actually preached to both groups, and he took both groups, and he created something new. Something new that was neither. And so um, he makes both. He made both into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The dividing wall is gone because they're not two things anymore. Now they're one in Christ. Right? I don't know. I'm going to try to find metaphors and explanations and illustrations. In my army career, I served in um, West Germany. You know what? There is no West Germany anymore. And when I served in West Germany, I was on the, the border with East Germany, something we called the 1K zone, something I accidentally crossed one day and caused an international incident, and we're going to let that go for tonight. But back then, there was a West Germany, there was an East Germany, and there was a border. There was a barrier, a partition wall, okay? The Berlin Wall, pretty famous. I got a piece of it and gave it to my mother. Found it when she was with the Lord. Oh, she kept that thing, Okay? There isn't a West German and East Germany anymore, and there is no more partition. There's now just Germany. Maybe that's a bad illustration, but I'm, I'm going I'm to go with it. So in Christ, just like there's no West Germany, East Germany, in Christ, there's no Gentiles, there's no Jews. Everybody today that's either a Gentile or a Jew is an unbeliever. Because the moment they get saved... They're no longer the, the Gentile they used to be. They're no longer the Jew they used to be. They are now a heavenly citizen. They are now a member of the royal family of God. They are a new creation in Christ. And so both groups, and I think it's important that we see this, that uh, both, he made both, and we have both, that he might reconcile them both into one body. And he also preached to both. He came and he preached to both. He preached to those who were near and he preached. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He's preaching to both because he's reconciling both. He's turning both into one new man. 
And we're going to spell this out. I, you know, this is kind of another introductory class like we had on Sunday. But I want to be clear on this. In case you're familiar with Arnold Fruchtenbaum or you're familiar with um, Builders of Israel, you're familiar with other uh, of our brothers, and we love them. God bless them. They're born again. They're saved. Uh, but their understanding is different on this related to their, their ecclesiology. And I think it's a flawed ecclesiology based on a flawed Israelology. And I know Arnold wrote the book on Israelology. Okay? But uh, the concept that you can be both in a dual citizenship kind of way, where you can have all the fullness of the blessings in Christ, while still at the same time also have the covenant of Israel, positional truth, blessings, I believe that defies the plain language of this chapter and the next when we get into to chapter 3, where there is no Jew nor Gentile, positionally, in, uh, in, the, in the body of Christ. So just be aware of that. Okay? It's a friendly debate among friends. We don't, uh, we don't think any less of them because they've got some adjustments they need to make on their ecclesiology. Okay? So let's, uh, let's recognize it's both. Into one new man. I can't highlight that enough. In fact, I need to add more emphasis on that. So um, help me out here. Let's get more emphasis on that. I want to um, go to my highlighting panel. And I've got this one new man selected there. And I want to put it in all caps. And I want to do a, uh, a bold text. And I want to do a uh, color box. <laughs> all right. That's probably enough. What else can I do? I can put an exclamation point after it. All right. Does that jump off the page at you well enough yet? One new man. And since it's new, did it exist before? No. Gentiles existed before. Jews existed before. But this new man in Christ never existed before. It is new. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. It's a future creation, a future reality that never existed before. And we're both reconciled in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And we're going to disguise, what is this enmity? How did it get there? Who put it there? Who maintained it? I mean, we know Christ abolished it, but, but where did, it, did God design that? When he was giving Mosaic Law, did he say, here you go, and uh, here's something you can use to beat up those nasty Gentiles I didn't give the law to. Feel free to call them names and, 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 and think less of them because um, I didn't give them what I gave you. Okay, we'll have to discuss where the enmity came from and why it was maintained and why the pejorative is what it is when you call somebody um, uncircums uncircumcision. So, the imperative to remember. I love it. It's a present active imperative. Don't, don't ever forget it. Uh, always maintain a dispensational distinction in your mind. That's why I'm glad that uh, next week we're finishing our first volume of Geisler. And then the week after that, we're starting a, about a 15-week course on dispensations. And we're going to work our way through Charles Ryrie and his textbook. And we're going to just equip these uh, seminary students uh, everything we can equip them with for a dispensational mindset as they uh, proceed in their training. Then, once we finish that module, we'll go back to Geisler again, and we'll jump into Volume 2, which is God and creation, and we'll just take it from there.
So, remember, formerly, we have the uh, enclitic particle pata, right? Formerly, used 28 times in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's just a, a time marker that spotlights something previous to now. It spotlights uh, a, a, a previous time, once upon a time, on, on an occasion, previously, formerly. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a time. It's just uh, a generic marker of that was then. And, as, and it's a legitimate question. Is this connected to the formerly walked and formerly lived from verses 2 and 3? Or is it an entirely different contrast that we see here in verses 11 and 13? The formerlies here have nothing to do with back before you got saved. This is a contrast with back before the church started. Back before there was a church. The Gentiles had this estate. Israel had their estate. But now, in Christ... There's a new position, something that never existed before. And we can, uh, we can celebrate that. So it is not uh, the, the same. It is, in fact, an entirely different contrast. That's the answer. Now we have a question here about Gentiles in the flesh. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Ta ethne en sarki. <laughs> okay, Gentiles in the flesh. This almost nonsensical in the flesh description of you Gentiles and the pejorative label of uncircumcision, it helps us. It actually helps us to fix the formally but now discourse in dispensational rather than salvific terms. Because we're not talking about being saved. We're talking about situations in the flesh. We're talking about situations of basic biology and humanity and bios life. Okay? Here, my question is, what, what other kind of Gentiles are there besides Gentiles in the flesh? Are there spiritual Gentiles out there somewhere? Are there angelic Gentiles? Out there? What, what are we doing? Obviously, Gentiles in the flesh is, uh, is, is what it is, right? And when Paul talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh, he's talking about Jews. He's talking about the racial, ethnic uh, reality of the Jewish people. This is an aspect of Sarks, by the way, that uh, confuses some folks because uh, very frequently we use Sarks uh, and, and Spirit, we use that as, as a, the Bible uses that as a description of being out of fellowship versus being in fellowship. You're carnal or you're spiritual. You're either in the flesh or you're walking by the Spirit. And so uh, there, you've got to be cautious when you have the phrase flesh to, to understand, okay, the parameter of this passage is not dealing with confessing your sins and being restored to fellowship. It's just a basic description of biological humanity. It's a description of the physical ethnicity that we have as Jews or Gentiles in the flesh. Okay? So that's not an issue. It's probably worth looking at if, uh, if I didn't have two minutes left in this class. We could pull up the... Um, you, could you can right-click the word flesh... You can identify the lemma over here as Sarks, and you know it's the lemma because it's got that lemma logo. And when you select it, it shows you lemma Sarks in the top right column. And then you bring up your Baba Word Study there. And uh, by and large, it's translated flesh, fleshly. It's kind of standard for how it's translated. But it's also worthwhile, and there's how it's used in the Septuagint for the different Hebrew expressions. There's the different roots. Sarks and Sarkikos and Sarkinos. Okay. But then also, here's a, here's a panel for you. Do you ever look at this one? 
This is the sense panel. I almost showed it to you this morning when we were talking about Yare, the fear of the Lord. And sometimes the fear is a godly reverence, or sometimes the fear is you're just scared of something, <laughs> okay? And so the sense can be different. Is it a godly reverence, fear of the Lord, or are you scared of something with a human fear? Likewise with sarks. It, it's translated flesh. It means flesh. But are we talking about the flesh in terms of carnality and sin? Are we talking about flesh in terms of tissue, like flesh and blood or flesh and bone, phrases like that? We're talking about the human body. We're talking about humanity, which is flesh, as opposed to angels that are spirit. Okay? So there's a lot of senses in which flesh, even with respect to the race of people, it can carry that sense. Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. Okay? He's the, he's the forefather of the Jewish people. Anyway, so I would encourage you, as you're looking at your word study windows, look at your lemma, look at your New Testament usage, your Old Testament usage, be aware of the different roots, and then be aware of the different senses that a word can, and in some cases, now not every word is like this, in some cases, the word is used in only one sense all the time, every time, and it's pretty basic and easy to take from there. But in cases like this, you've got a pretty broad spectrum of usage within a semantic range of, of the sense of how that uh, word is being used. And that's, my friends, that is very useful because it's not the lexicons that determine the meaning, it's the usage and how it's used in its context that determines the meaning. So this sense panel is, is a very useful panel. In your, uh, in your Bible word study. So, uh, when we talk about Gentiles according to the flesh, the uncircumcision, Gentiles in the flesh, that's, that's showing us that we're not dealing with a salvation contrast. Because nobody's, you know, in the flesh, you, you didn't stop being a male, you didn't stop being a female, you didn't stop being a Jew, you didn't stop being a Gentile. In the flesh, the day you got saved, you were still, I was still a white male, okay, that didn't change when I got saved in the flesh, but the positional truth reality, huge, because I was baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ, and I was part of that, I was created as a part of that new creation, that one new man in Christ. So, anyway, think about that between now and Sunday, we'll pick up here, Lord willing and rapture pending, and, uh, and continue to, uh, to break these things down, because I think it's useful for us to do so. Father, thank you for these uh, details. Thank you for the diligence to pay attention to the details, Father, and to glean what it is you would have for us uh, in, in every verse, in every word, in every jot and tittle that we look at. So thank you for being faithful, Father. And uh, all in all, the praise just continues. There was an awful lot of praise in the patrological benediction of chapter 1 and then in the wish prayer of chapter 1. Tremendous amount of praise in the by grace you have been saved through faith of chapter 2. And now there's still even more praise on the way, Father, because uh, we are now one new man in Christ. And uh, what, a, what a privilege, what an access uh, for those who were far away, for those who were near. And even those who were near didn't understand how much nearer they could be now that they have the nearness in Christ, Father, it makes that other nearness look like it's not even a nearness by comparison. So, Father, uh, continue to open our eyes to these principles, to these truths, and uh, continue to, uh, to shape us as we grow. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.